Welcome to the program, ladies and gentlemen. It is good to be with you once again. I want to thank you for joining me and my special guest, Jim Osman. If you've uh, been following the series, Jim Osman, as you know, is my friend and pastor, pastor of Kootenai, spelled K-O-O-T-E-N-A-I, not necessarily spelled like it sounds, but Kootenai Community Church up here in the northern panhandle of Idaho, one of the prettiest areas that uh, I've ever been to. I've been a lot of places. It's beautiful up here. And so, uh, Jim, good to have you with us once again. Thank you again. All right, Jim. Uh, We have been talking about spiritual warfare. You've written a book entitled Spiritual Warfare, Truth or Territory. And uh, just a brief synopsis of what we've covered thus far and and what your book is about. Uh, We've talked a little bit about why the book is necessary, that we have a a whole-scale abandonment of a belief in the sufficiency of Scripture in the church, and uh, this has manifested itself in one way in the realm of spiritual warfare, where we have a lot of people who abandon the belief in the sufficiency of Scripture for the testimony of demons and um, ex-Satanists and everything else in in trying to fight this war against Satan. So the book really is geared toward um, showing people that true spiritual warfare, according to Scripture, is a truth war and not a territory war. Which leads us up into our, our topic for this week. And basically, Jim, there are two broad views of spiritual warfare, and you contrast these in your book. Do you not? Tell us, tell us about these two broad views here. Okay, well, the title of the book is Truth or Territory. So there is the truth view that spiritual warfare is a battle for the truth, and then there is the territory view that spiritual warfare is a battle over territory. So uh, let me contrast them just a little bit. On the territory side, people who think that spiritual warfare is a battle for territory, this is where you get into the uh, this present darkness, piercing the darkness, Frank Peretti, Neil T. Anderson, Mark Bubick, and Thomas White approach to spiritual warfare, which which envisions that we are... We are casting down demons. We are attacking spiritual fortresses, spiritual strongholds, generational curses, praying hedges, removing hexes, uh, mapping out spiritual territory, taking back the seven mountains and the five cultures of this and, uh, and all of that, uh, gaining uh, territory for the Lord that we're supposed to take over all of this territory that Satan has been in control of and that Satan has been um, uh, been manipulating and, and, and maintaining control of, and now we have to take that back. So how do we take this back? And the territory view says, well, we need to do this through praying certain prayers and casting down certain strongholds and hand-to-hand combat with demons, much like you would uh, have in a piercing the darkness, this present darkness type storyline. Right. Then there's the truth view, which says that uh, the spiritual warfare that we are called to fight is a battle for the truth, that we are to stand for the truth and to love the truth, proclaim the truth, preach the truth, and rest in the truth of God in his word, and that the fortresses that we are to attack are mental fortresses. They are false ideologies, deceptions, lies, and falsehoods. And what is the best cure for uh, delivering people from darkness and falsehood? Is it binding Satan, praying hedges of thorns, removing hexes? naming names and exercising demons, or is it the proclamation of the truth? And I, post- I, I propose that it is the, post- the proclamation of the truth. Right. That's the truth view. Right. Jim, would it be a stretch, this chase a rabbit just for a second, is, is it a stretch just in listening to you describe the territorial view? This is the commonly held view, what most people think of, and exactly what you say, taking back territory, binding Satan, all these things, kind of reclaiming things. Is it, a, is it too much of a stretch to, to, to see some connection between that and post-millennialism? 
kind of uh, wanting to reclaim the culture? Is there? Is, do you think there's? Yeah, I've, I've got some post-millennialist friends who would say, "Don't don't ever lump me in with these extreme wacko charismatics." In fact, I have a, a post-millennialist friend uh, who used to attend our church who. Um, w- would never suggest that that approach to spiritual warfare, the territory view, is the biblical view. Right. Th- I think that the only thing that they would have, and well, not the only thing, but what th- what they would have in common that you're seeing there, is that both of them view the role of the church as taking over certain and expanding and growing so that it encompasses certain realms. And um, I don't know of a, I, I know a few post millennialists. I don't I don't swim in a lot of post mill circles, but I know a few guys, and I don't think any of them would would adopt this method of spiritual warfare. Right. But they do have this in common, in that they think that the role of the church is to is to grab that territory through the post millennialists would say through the proclaiming of the gospel and the Christianizing of these things. Um, the spiritual warfare guy says we need to do it through all of these other methods, exorcisms, binding and hedges and all of yeah. that stuff. So kind of the same the same overall end, but different means. To Looking at the end. same goal, yeah. But uh, I think it would be unfair to, to say post-millennialists would, would adopt that, that approach to spiritual warfare. Right, yeah, of course. All right, well, uh, what, is our, what would be the primary text? Now, people would say, well, well, I thought all of this was b- biblical. When I think of spiritual warfare, I think of swashbuckling angels and demons and and um, uh, throwing one down over the other. And, Swords and of light clashing with each other like lightsabers in a Star Wars movie. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So what uh, I, I thought this was, I, to the person who thinks this is the way it is, you know, I thought this was true. This is what I've been taught. So what... Where, where are you going to go from Scripture to say that it's not? Well, I, I think that there is a defining text in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. Now, I'm going to read the passage, and then we're going to, we're going to talk about some of the implications of it and, and uh, kind of a little bit of the background here. 2 Corinthians 10. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, and we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. Now, you'll notice that that passage, Paul doesn't begin that passage by saying, this is the definition of spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is blah, blah, blah. He doesn't do that. He doesn't, he's not defining spiritual warfare, but he is describing warfare because he says that the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful, the destruction of fortresses. And so he's talking here about fortresses and weapons that we use, and he's contrasting spiritual weapons with fleshly weapons. Now a little bit of the background to 2 Corinthians. Paul was defending in 2 Corinthians his lifestyle, his ministry, his calling, and his credentials. And we only get one side of this conversation because we don't have in our in our scripture the letter that the Corinthians wrote to Paul. Right. We don't have any of that. But right. you can read 2 Corinthians and you get Paul's response to some of the things that they were saying and some of the things that were being said about him by false teachers in the church of Corinth. So it's kind of like overhearing the conversation in a food court when the guy on the other side, you know, sitting two tables across from you. He's got his phone, and he says to somebody on the other end, no, I don't beat my wife. No, I don't beat my children. No, I'm not a drunkard. What makes you think that I do that? I don't, do, I don't live like that. No, I wasn't in the bar last night. You can kind of guess right. what the other side of the conversation was, that these accusations were being made because you're hearing the answers to these accusations. Same thing in 2 Corinthians. We have Paul defending himself, and we can discern from 2 Corinthians that they were accusing Paul of using fleshly methods, of taking their money. These are the false teachers 
of, of taking the money of the Corinthians, of of not being articulate, not being a good teacher, even um, things connected to immorality and bad motives and whether he was really an apostle or whether he had presumed his apostleship. And so Paul's dealing with these accusations in the church at Corinth um, in that second in the second epistle to Corinthians. Right. So they had attacked not only his character and his lifestyle and his ministry as being ungodly, worldly, of the flesh. And so what we have in second Corinthians is Paul saying, no, we have not waged the spiritual fight according to the way that we are charged with waging it. We have not done it with fleshly weapons. We have not um, done it with man's methodologies. We do this spiritual warfare fighting a spiritual battle against spiritual enemies using the, the, the effective weapons of power that God has given to us. They're not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. So Paul is really, um, he, he is really contrasting the, the methodology of the false teachers with his. He is contrasting uh, their ministry with his and their... Um, and and them, the false teachers, with himself. And he is he is drawing a sharp distinction. These men had crept into the church and were slandering him and accusing him of doing ministry in a fleshly way. And Paul is contrasting his method with theirs and saying, This is not we do not do it in a fleshly way. We do it according to God's word and God's truth. Right. And and this kind of dovetails off of what we um, talked with last week's program about the sufficiency of Scripture and the tendency that um, probably you know, a temptation that we would all face, if we're honest, to exceed biblical parameters. And but once we once we jettison the sufficiency of Scripture, then that opens us up to. Ironically, it opens us up to the very demonic delusion and deception that spiritual warfare is supposed to protect us from. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it also uh, opens us up to the to the uh, we got, give in to the temptation of walking according to the to the flesh, and and we see this in today's church. We see it with the church growth movement, do we not? And yeah, and all these methods to try to to grow churches, and and we want to do it. We want to do it our way. We yeah. want to do it our way rather than the way that God has prescribed. Yeah, it, it's a temptation that, that everybody faces um, in that we are constantly looking for ways, and sometimes it can be well-intentioned, to please the Lord. We want to please the Lord. We want to do things well. And uh, so sometimes we can Christians can be very well-meaning but very uh, deceived in thinking that they can approach things according to a fleshly uh, or a worldly perspective and begin to do things the way the world has done it. The, the world is very effective at doing a lot of things, entertaining people, selling things, uh, marketing things, um, presenting things, and we want to do it with excellence too. And so there's the temptation to adopt the world's view of these things and the world's way of doing them. And uh, that, that, is, that is just ransacking the church today in all kinds of different ways. Even, even church government. You know, there are churches that set up their government of their church, and we're going to have an elected pastor and elected elders and elected deacons, and we have a nominating committee, and, and we're going to run it as a congregation. We're going to elect our representatives, and, well, that's the world's way of doing it. We have a constitutional right. republic in our country. We do it that way, but that's not necessarily God's way. Right. But the temptation we always face is to say, what works? Let's do it. Right. It's pragmatism. And the Corinthians did this, and they had, they were, if, if, if something was worldly or fleshly, uh, or of human origin, the Corinthians gobbled it up. And you see it in, in the first letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. They evaluated and valued human wisdom above anything else. If it was worldly wise, 
they were on board. They valued human eloquence and oratory, and the more eloquent you were and articulate, the better of a presenter you were, they valued that. That was the sort of the Greek mentality. They focused on human teachers to the point where there were divisions among them. They went to law courts against each other and used man's courts instead of working these things out in the church. And even their view of gifts was very man-centered and earthly. And so they just, in, in every area, all these things that Paul corrects in the first epistle, they, they would glom on to these worldly, man-centered, man-focused, carnal ways of doing things. And uh, there seems to be some indication, at least in Second Corinthians, that they had adopted maybe some of the same mentality and thinking when it came to spiritual warfare, that they adopted carnal weapons. And Paul is contrasting that and saying our weapons are not carnal. Right, right. Uh, I think that's very interesting. It, 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 we have adopted so much... Um, Humanistic methods and, uh, and and methods from the world, things that we see modeled in the world, and we have brought those right into the church. When when in reality they're completely foreign to scripture. One one little example I can I can always remember growing up as a Southern Baptist when you when you quote unquote asked Jesus into your heart and got baptized, you became a church member, and and then as a church member as an eight-year-old, a seven- or eight-year-old kid who gets baptized and becomes a church member, he's got just as much say over how anything is is done as does an 85-year-old man who's been in that church for, you know... 65 years. Yeah. Yeah. And just as much say so. And I, I've always found that odd. The eight-year-old's vote in selecting the next pastor yeah. means just as much as the 80-year-old's vote in selecting the next pastor. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and I can remember that. That always left me kind of scratching my head. And, and now, with hindsight looking back, I see why. Because it's worldly systems that we've brought into the church. And, and then we wonder, you know, we scratch our heads wondering why our, our churches aren't yeah. functioning as they should be functioning. Yeah, why have we gone south? Right. Nothing against the south. Nothing against the south. <laughs> you and I have had a little friendly banter back and forth in, in that regard. So, uh, All right, so, uh, Jim, back to spiritual warfare. How, how do we fight this if, if, we're, if, if, it's not the, um, if it's not the dramatic, behind-the-scene, Frank Peretti, uh, swashbuckling kind of lightsaber duels? How... How do we fight this battle of spiritual warfare? Well, let's, let's take apart Second uh, Corinthians 10 for just a moment. In verse 3, Paul says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Now, he's not talking there about flesh in its moral or ethical sense. It's, it's flesh in that, though we are people of flesh and blood. We live in this world, we live amongst physical things. So though we do walk in the flesh, and he's not saying we're walking in the flesh like we are serving the carnal flesh or our carnal nature. He's saying, though we walk in this world and... We are associated with flesh and blood. That's not how we wage warfare. We don't, though we walk in the flesh, we don't war and wage our spiritual warfare according to fleshly means. That would be according to human wisdom, human knowledge, human discernment, human reason, human rationality, or human, human man-made weapons. We do this according to God's methods, and God's ways are always different than man ways. man's ways. If you're a believer for any period of time, you, you start to understand this, that what seems natural to a man... And to, and, and to do things a certain way is not natural to God. It is not God's way. So whereas we might value entertainment, God values biblical preaching. Where we might uh, value certain types of music in the worship service, God values certain things that honor and focus on Him. So God's ways are always different than our ways. So though we walk in the human nature 
And in this realm, which is of the world in the physical sense, not the moral sense, the physical sense, we, that's not how we war. We're not, we don't pick up these worldly or fleshly methods of warfare. Instead, we have powerful weapons, verse 4 says. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. And so, so the question then becomes, what are, what are these fortresses that Paul is talking about? In verse 5, he says, We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And in that passage, it is amazing how many times the Apostle Paul makes emphasis on the thoughts, the speculations, the knowledge of God. This this is where the issue of truth comes in and why spiritual warfare is a battle for truth right. and not territory. What is it that we are casting down? Is it a demonic stronghold that was placed upon me by my great-grandfather because he was an adulterating drunkard? I don't know if that's true or not, but I'm just giving a spec, a, 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 right. an example. Am I fighting against that stronghold, or is the stronghold a fortress in which the truth is excluded and in which men hold themselves up, surrounded by these lies that protect them from the truth and from the knowledge of Christ? And that's what Paul is describing. He's describing these mental fortresses, these these thoughts, ideologies, speculations, things that are lift themselves up. And you think in terms of these mighty fortresses that are sort of hold up against any kind of knowledge of God and, and submitting to Christ. And we see this in the ways that people think and the ideologies that people, that, that people love to sort of bury themselves into. Uh, man makes all kinds of mental fortresses, which he, that is to say that he surrounds himself with lies. And he surrounds himself with deceptions. And you can think of all kinds of examples of this. Evolution is a lie. Atheism is a lie. Moral relativism is a lie. The modern notion of political correctness and tolerance and theological liberalism and naturalism and rationalism and humanism, all of these things are lies. And men surround themselves with these lies and they barricade themselves against the true knowledge of God in these mental fortresses, and what is it that forms the walls? It's all these false ideologies, these speculations, these lofty ways of thinking that men raise up. And I can't believe in God because evolution is true. Or I can't believe in God because there's not enough proof of God in creation or in in this accident that we call creation. Right. You know, And so they, they hold themselves up in these mental fortresses, insulated against the truth, and they are content to live in those and believe the lies. Spiritual warfare... Right is attacking those things with the truth through the proclamation of the truth. And that happens through the gospel, that the gospel is our weapon. Right. And, and I think that that is that is so very important. This is when we're really getting into the to the meat of the matter, this whole this whole discussion on spiritual warfare, because we have this idea that these fortresses are, you know, something that they're really not. But the the, for, the fortresses with uh, that we have got to bring down are very real they are things like evolution they are things like uh, atheism and political correctness and, and uh, theological liberalism but they are also things like uh, there are evangelicals who are inside their own fortresses and they don't even realize it they're they they reject the sovereignty of God and salvation mm-hmm. you know that 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 can't be right because I, I just don't think that would be that's not how I picture God to be. Right. <laughs> and yet, that that's how God has revealed himself. So even many evangelicals, we have created this false notion of God. We've created a God about how we want him to be, how we think he ought to be, 
rather than how he has revealed himself to be. Mm-hmm. And we're going to do church like we think church ought to be done. Uh, we were talking before the before we started recording the program uh, that so many churches, when they put together a um, what they call a pastor search committee, if they're without a, if their pastor leaves or goes off to another church, whatever, and they're looking for another pastor, they get a, a search committee together of however many people, you know, nine, ten people, whatever it is, and half of those people are going to be female. Mm-hmm. Well, that seems like the equitable thing to do, to let females have a say-so in our next, you know, the next pastor, uh, pastor. but <clears throat> is that is that a, another one of these strongholds? Yeah, it's a, it's we have ways of men in this flesh has ways of thinking which are the product of being the children of the father of lies. And we come out of that and we get saved. The Lord delivers us from that. But sometimes those ways of thinking still carry on into our Christian life. And we can begin to think that um, that there are ways of handling spiritual warfare, go, setting up a church, finding the next pastor, um, handling controversies or church discipline. And rather than going to Scripture to see what does the Scripture say about this, people think, well, this is this is sort of a practical way of doing it. Let's just do it. This, this would seem to work. Right. You know, the world has a way of doing this, and it works. So let's do it. Right. Without ever asking, is God's way different? Right. And um, these speculations that Paul's talking about, these lofty things lifted up against the knowledge of God in Second Corinthians chapter 10, uh, these are false ideologies. These are these are lies of the enemy that insulate men from the truth. And think of it as think of it as things which keep men from being willing or able to consider the truth. You know, if you've ever talked with somebody who is an an ardent atheist or evolutionist, they have lies that they believe. They believe some of the goofiest, stupidest stuff that you can ever possibly imagine. But those things, believing those things, keeps them, gives them an, an intellectual excuse not to consider the claims of Scripture. Right. And so they would believe things like, the Bible's written by man, therefore it must have errors in it. And uh, it's written over a long period of time. It's been translated and retranslated and retranslated hundreds and thousands of times. We have no idea what was originally written. Well, this is absolute nonsense. That's lies of the enemy. But they can believe that, and that keeps them from ever having to consider the claims of Scripture. And so how do you get past these lies that people believe, which insulate them from the truth of God? How do you get break down those barriers so that men be, be made captive and every false thought be made captive to Christ and, and the thinking of men's minds becomes become slaves of Christ. How do we do that? And the, the tool that God has given to us is the truth. It's the gospel. It's not these carnal weapons like praying hedges of thorns and hexes and generational you know, rebuking and renouncing generational curses. Those are fleshly means of doing absolutely nothing. The way that we fight the deceptions of the enemy is to proclaim the truth. Right. And, and the goal is to make men slaves of Christ. That's what we're after. We want to make men slaves of Christ. Not that we want to make a decision to walk a aisle to check a box. We want to make men slaves of Christ. How do you do that? You have to remove from them. You have to destroy all lies with the truth of the gospel, the truth of God's word, so that every excuse that they have for not believing the truth vanishes and melts away, and men must come face-to-face with Christ and become slaves of him. Right. And in one of my recent radio programs, Jim, I was talking about how uh, we can take a, a pretty good temperature, if you will, of our love for Christ by how much we obey him. Uh, by Jesus says, he who has my commandments and keeps them, not just has, but keeps them, 
he it is who loves me. Mm-hmm. And so if, if you want to, to take a temperature of your love for Christ, uh, don't necessarily look at your, your feelings and emotions, not that those are, are uh, not um, uh, legitimate. I mean, I, I think when we think of what Christ did for us on the cross, we should be overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. Our, our feelings and our emotions absolutely should be affected. But if you really want a good barometer of where you are in your relationship with Christ, what do you do with his commandments? Mm-hmm. You have them. You've got them in, in, in your Bible right in front of you, so you've got them. Do you keep them? Do we obey him? Do we obey him? Yeah. Why do we call him Lord, Lord, if we don't obey him? Exactly. Yeah. And, and part of the <clears throat> part of the thing that leads some people to approach this in such a, a spiritual warfare in such a fleshly way is is just the sheer ignorance of what Scripture teaches concerning these things. And once again, we get back to you, you, we got well-meaning men, well-intentioned men who stand in the pulpit and and say things like, uh, you know, we're going to bind Satan, we're going to pray a hedge protection around people, and <clears throat> we're going to do this, that, and the other thing. And and these are well-meaning men, but they approach these things from a very unbiblical perspective. And the people who sit in front of them every Sunday, we pick up this vernacular. You hear people talk about this. You hear people pray a certain way, and they adopt these methods, thinking that they're biblical, but they're really just tradition that's been handed down to us. And uh, these things work their way into uh, an approach or an understanding of spiritual warfare. And then we we get to the point where we where thinking on spiritual warfare has more in common with a Frank Peretti novel. And I don't mean to pick on Frank Peretti, but has more in common with a Frank Peretti novel than it does anything we read in Scripture. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, I read the uh, This Present Darkness when I was in seminary, Frank Peretti, and and uh, for a while, of course, I, those of you who know my testimony, wasn't even converted at the time, but that shaped my view of, of uh, spiritual warfare for a long time as well. Um, so, Jim, back to, our, back to our weapon. Our weapon is the Word of God. Our weapon is, is the gospel. Uh, flesh that out a little bit. Give us some, give us some uh, I don't want to use the term proof text, but where would we go to see this weapon um, uh, outlined for us, displayed for us in in the text. In the well, in Second Corinthians, Paul talks about the weapons of our warfare being mighty in God. In First Corinthians, <clears throat> he already really addressed the issue with Corinthians and 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 their approach to doing things in a worldly way, as opposed to God's approach to doing it in a spiritual or truth-centered way. And that was in the very first chapter of First Corinthians. Where Paul says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. This is verse 18 and following. But to us who are being saved, it, that is the word of God, or the word of the cross, is the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world, through its wisdom, did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And then Second First Corinthians 2, Paul says, When I came to you, brethren, I didn't come with superiority of speech or wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I delivered, determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. So there you have Paul contrasting the wisdom of God, the wisdom of the world, the wisdom of men, the power of God, the power of men, the power of God, the power of the word, and the power of eloquence. And we have men's way, and we have God's way. Men's way is 
worldly methodologies, worldly thinking, things that, that we can see, touch, feel, that we think are effective, and then you have the things that God says are effective. And in this case, what is it that is the power of God unto salvation that destroys the wisdom of the world, destroys the debaters, the wise men, the scribes, the, the wisdom of this world? What is it that destroys that? It is the power of God. It is the message of the cross. That is what brings down these ideologies and these fortresses and these speculations. So how do we... How do we approach the errors and the lies of the enemy? We proclaim the truth. It's the gospel. It's the word of the cross. <clears throat> I mean, Paul said, uh, Romans one sixteen. Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Right. For everyone who believes, for the Jew first, and also to the to the Greek, to the Gentile. The the power of God, Jim, is not um, not binding Satan or, or taking back territory, the power of God. If you want to see the power of God unleashed, preach the gospel. Right. Read the gospel, study it, obey it, preach it, teach it. Uh, that that's that's the power of God and that that is what breaks down these strongholds, not mm-hmm. some uh, you know, you don't have to have your as I've heard Rod Parsley, some other word of faith preachers say, you don't have to. They say we have to start commanding our angels. We each have our own hmm. personal angels. We command them to do this and that and go to battle for us. And that that's not it at all, is it? No, no. There's a there's the modern methodology is the territory view. The biblical view is the truth view. And those two views of spiritual warfare, they have different objectives, different weapons. They're combating different enemies, and they have, of course, a different source of intelligence. But the spiritual warfare is a war and a battle over the truth. And it has been since the garden and the first lie. If it is a war and a battle for the truth, then how would we say that the church is doing today in the battle for the truth? Are we winning the battle or are we losing the battle? Right. And I think we're losing the battle. I think the church has all but abandoned the truth now. Uh, we, uh, The church, the evangelical church in America, is engulfed by compromise on every front. We have ecumenism that is rampant. We have confusion about the gospel. Most people in most churches could not even communicate the gospel if their lives depended on it. They haven't heard it from the pulpit in so long because the gospel has been the gospel has been uh, clouded in compromise and in mystery and sort of set aside in the interest of all these other things. We have an unwillingness even in the church to call out false teachers. Right. Uh, we we got guys who are leaders in the in in churches and leaders in church circles who are not even willing to identify Benny Hinn as a false teacher. Right. You were on his radio program. He's not even willing to identify Benny Hinn as a false teacher. He yeah. thinks John Calvin was a false teacher, but he won't identify Benny Hinn as a false teacher. And when, speaking of Dr. Michael Brown. Yeah, when you have that kind of confusion about what is the truth and what is error, and these are the leaders of certain circles in evangelicalism and in, in Christianity, how's the church doing? Are we winning the truth war? Right. Are we losing the truth truth war? We're, we're Churches are filled with false converts and confused Christians, so we've compromised with the culture. We've got people willing to go along just to get along. Redefining marriage, churches are willing to do that. Ordain women, ordain homosexuals, get the gospel out, the Bible out, whatever they need to do to, to get along with everybody. That's the way that everything is heading. That's the way that everybody is heading. And um, we may think that we're binding Satan and we got him all chained up somewhere. In the spiritual realm, yeah, but the church is losing the truth war. Absolutely, they've capitulated on it. Absolutely, and I, I've told you, you and I've talked before. Um, this church with which I'm very familiar uh, is a, a church. Uh, it happens to be a Southern Baptist church. Claims belief in the inerrancy of Scripture, and I suppose would even I suppose would say they believe in the sufficiency. But um, uh, the pastor of this church had a, a female Episcopal 
Pastrix, I guess you would call a female <laughs> pastor, Pastrix. X-S? Uh, pastor S? Pastor S, yeah, Pastorette, I don't know. Pastorette, that's a good Pastorette. Uh, come in and, and speak, um, preach at a, at a service uh, during Holy Week, <clears throat> the, the week leading up to Easter. And I talked to him, uh, asked him what was going on, gave him the biblical reasons that this should not happen, and... Um, you know, nothing was done about it. Nothing was done about it. So you, you want to talk about spiritual warfare, that's spiritual warfare. You know, yeah, that's, that's right. That's a stronghold that needs to be demolished by the Word of God. By the truth. By the truth. Right. So, and, and you probably have people in churches that do that. You have people sitting there thinking that spiritual warfare is praying hedges of protection, pleading the blood of Jesus, binding Satan, rebuking demons, and yet they are capitulating on the truth. Right. Utterly giving up the truth because they're not even fighting a truth war. Right. They don't even think the truth is important. What's important is how they feel about what they're doing, what they think they're doing to demons. It's you know the, the Bible is great until it becomes inconvenient. Yeah, and there, there's no amount of fleshly weapons that can compensate when you are abandoning the battle for the truth. Yeah. There's nothing else that can compensate for that. That's right. That's right. Amen. Well, Jim, good word, brother. Good word. Uh, where are we headed next week? Give us a little preview for next week's. Next program. week, we're going to talk about well, something we've already mentioned probably in all of these first three uh, sessions, and that is um, praying hedges, praying, praying hedge. hedges, hedge of thorns, hedge of protection, hedges against the devil. Yep, uh, I can't tell you. I'm sure everybody listening has heard this. I have heard it umpteen times. Uh, all the time, all the time. So I'm, I'm excited about next week's program, Praying Hedges. We're really going to get into some of these common, commonly held myths uh, next week, Praying Hedges, and then we're going to look at Binding Satan and uh, things like that. So uh, so I'm, I'm looking forward to the to the ride that, Lord willing, is, is yet ahead of us. And Jim, tell us once again, where can we get Spiritual Warfare, Truth or Territory? You can get the book Truth or Territory at truthorterritory.com. Truthorterritory.com. Com, available on Kindle, and um, highly, highly commend it to you. Again, the proceeds, the the profit from this book, not going to go to Jim. It's not going to go fund his private jet or anything like that, uh, which he does not have one. It's going to uh, to the building program, Kootenai Church, as uh, we are trying to to uh, relocate into a, a standalone building for to better better carry out what God has has entrusted us to do. So, Jim. Thank you very much, brother, and Lord willing. Thank Willie, you. Thank you. We'll join, join again once next week. And uh, until then, dear ones, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.